Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. This episode, we're going to be talking about High Rise, Korean film Tunnel, Louder Than Bombs, and we'll be finishing up with a discussion of the BBC Top 100 films of the 2000s. But first, to High Rise. For all its inconveniences, Lang was satisfied with life in the High Rise. Ready to move forward and explore life. How he had not yet decided. I thought you were empty. I just moved in. You're an excellent specimen. You don't know how things work around here, do you? I'm a fast learner. Which floor are you? At 25. We're down in the bottom and all sorts of shadows. Most families are. We pay the same charges as the top floors. We want our fair share of the power. Things would be better if we could afford to move to a higher floor. If you lower people, overload the system, there'll be power cuts. How's the high life? Prone to fits of mania, narcissism, and power failure. When wife and husband team of screenwriter Amy Jump and director Ben Wheatley announced they were adapting J.G. Ballard's retro-futuristic dystopian novel, cinephiles the world over set expectations to high. The pair of previously examined British class in Sightseers and A Field in England, which was a hit at MIF 2013. Andy, did you find Wheatley's unhinged retro-futuristic vision plummeted new depths of movie mediocrity? Or did it soar to satirical heights? <laughs> um, it sat around floor 25 for me. Um, I thought it certainly uh, had a, a really strong visual look, which is something that he's been developing nicely over the last few years. Um, I've certainly been a massive fan of Ben Wheatley's earlier stuff. I really liked thought Field in England was very strong. In this one, it was great to see him with a bigger canvas and with some big names and being able to really kind of stretch out, particularly with a book that is fairly thin on characterization and um, pretty big on allegory. I thought this was going to be a really good match. I was a little, I suppose, disappointed possibly um, in the way that the film kind of set up a lot of promising situations and really kind of kept everything hermetically sealed within the building, within the high-rise itself. So um, for people who aren't familiar with it, it it, the film begins with Tom Hiddleston, who plays a Dr. Robert Lang, and he moves into... Uh, floor 25 on this 40-storey high-rise. Um, it becomes very clear from the beginning that this is stratified. So the lower floors have lower class people and up on the very top is uh, the architect of the building, played by Jeremy Irons, a um, man called Mr Royal. And he has this kind of Edenic <laughs> garden up the top and qu- quickly sets about uh, building tension between the floors. And so I thought that was done quite well and had a really strong visual flair, which I thought was pretty pretty well suited but I was overall I felt like it could have done with a bit more characterization people were never really more than ciphers for their particular flaws or particular um, interactions I actually enjoyed that aspect of it that the characters didn't have a whole lot of depth and that they were just performing a role and sort of serving a kind of purpose to to whatever you know the narrative or the kind of structure that was trying to be be gotten across uh, I didn't mind that so much, but I found overall that it was, you know, as you said, Anders, or as you proposed, had a few elements of mediocrity to it. I couldn't quite get a grasp on it at any one time. I mean, that's kind of the the point, like it, it moved about, it had different pacing, different editing rhythms, and different kind of, you know, at times it, it made very little sense, and then at other times it had, you know, straightforward conversations and, and whatnot. Um, but overall, it 
didn't do all that much for me. I found there was one really stunning moment of editing that led into something else that I really particularly enjoyed about this film, which was the moment when he's in the um, – Tom Hiddleston is in the supermarket and then all of a sudden it's like there's an um, electrical outage, I think, mm, and mm. edits back and forth between that scene and a scene inside the building in one of the dark apartments and it kind of goes back and forth and doesn't make much sense. And then this incredible string version of ABBA's SOS comes over and they're Turns out they're playing that like in a string quartet at a party. I loved that. I really, mm. really loved it, and um, that called my mind to the Portishead version of SOS that yes. does um, come into the movie later on. But at that time, I when it, earlier in the movie, I thought, well, this movie has kind of you know come out at a time when Brexit is on and it's mm. all very relevant. But I didn't realise that the um, Portishead song was in the movie, so. Anyway, that was an interesting kind of reference there. Mm, definitely, and I thought that's some. Yeah, that's something I think is reflected in Clint Mansell's score as well. It's kind. Of, it's got some incredibly strong parts, like you were mentioning earlier mm. with SOS, and then there's some really interesting um, classical cues, and there's some psych rock in the particular party scene, and there's people are dancing to some really interesting kraut rock, <laughs> and yeah. then it kind of the whole thing finishes off over the closing credits with the Falls Industrial Estates, which is a you know post punk. Um, masterpiece, some people say. I do. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I felt like individually they were really, really strong, but together it was a bit of a hodgepodge and yeah. didn't quite hold together. Yeah, I agree. There was one moment as well where um, the one of the kind of sub leads is dancing kind of in slow motion at a party in, on a, you know, a slate of darkness and then outside the building something is happening that is sort of a, of a similar rhythm but... Um, kind of just a really beautiful juxtaposition of movement. Um, And in that editing, that's a really kind of a great Mm. moment. So that sort of thing that that he is doing, and he co-edited this with his screenwriter, Amy Jump, yeah. So they they both did the editing together, I noticed, in the credits. So they have clearly been very involved in this Mm. process together. Um, I, I like that about it at times, but there are other times when it was too slow for me. Right. Anyway. Do you think he's got a masterpiece in him? Oh, sorry, they've got a masterpiece in them? <laughs> Maybe. You said you said something I think along those lines, yeah, didn't you? I think there's a visual flair that he and Jonathan Glazer and maybe a couple of other directors have well, at the moment. Yeah, I was recalling um, Park Chan-wook's Stoker because right. I had a similar kind of impression of that where it was very beautiful and, you know, very kind of um, well presented, but there wasn't all that much going on mm, okay. um, and i felt a similar had a similar response to to high rise style over substance yeah to some extent well at this case anyway you know maybe i'll mull over it for a few days and and see how we go there was one moment where he's like um tom hiddleston's character paints a gray square on his wall mm. um and you sort of like you know why is this small gray square for no reason but then he shifts and turns his head out the window and there's a grey square window, you know, the window is out pointing out to a grey sky and I just really liked, I quite liked that, you know, that was a little bit poetic and, mm. you know, obviously quite sad and depressing as well. 
thumbs up to that moment. It was <laughs> the most interesting thing about the film for me was I really found it interesting how he suggested the outside world of the tower. And it wasn't, I mean, it really sort of reinforced the claustrophobia of this. So, like, the vast majority of the film takes place in this one high-rise building. But you see the sort of, you know, the exurbs of London, the city in the distance in a couple of shots. Mm. Uh, they sort of traverse the outdoor balconies. And it really, I thought underlined the sort of frenzied claustrophobia of the overall film, just those little glimpses of the outside world. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Um, That was a nice stylistic touch, definitely. Yeah, I find it interesting that we're talking about the style and not really about performances or characters or (laughs) (laughs) anything like that. It feels like everybody is kind of enthralled to the building itself, which what I found interesting was that it was never completed. And it was like there was still it was always still like a construction site almost around it, especially because Jeremy Irons was character. Mr. Royal was explaining how he wanted each one to be like a finger in a hand and with a lake mm. in the palm. Mm. But it just wasn't quite there. Never quite made it. No. Mm. <laughs> okay, so from revolting Londoners to trapped Koreans, we're now going to talk about the tunnel, which is the new film from Korean writer director Kim Seong Hoon. Uh, about a man who is driving through a tunnel outside of Seoul. It's newly constructed and then he's halfway through the tunnel or almost out. You know, it's a very traumatic kind of play back and forth. You know what's happening. The tunnel collapses and he gets trapped in his car. Um, he's gives the, the lead actor gives a very strong performance. His name is um, Jungwoo Ha um, and he gives a you know, very commanding performance and he's able to kind of carry the film, which is just, you know, kind of very high concept. Not all that much happens. I mean, there's a lot going on in it. But, um, yeah, so, Anders, what did you think of this this terrifically dramatic film? <laughs> it was it was very dramatic. Um, I, I, I think I was saying after watching this film, it, it was a total emotional roller coaster in, a, in the true sense of the word, for me anyway. So I found it... Um, I laughed, I teared up, I was on the edge of my seat. Like, it really hit all of those blockbuster nerves. The way that I think no sort of mainstream American film has for me in a very long time. So, uh, in that respect, I really dug it a lot. Um, I thought it was really, yeah, really interesting... Uh, you're right, a high concept. I went into it not knowing anything about it, and I thought we would be in for one of those, you know... um, James Franco stuck somewhere movies. Oh, yeah, uh, 127 yeah. hours. Or like uh, Ryan Reynolds buried. Ryan Reynolds. Like, I thought we would just only be with his character. Yeah, so yeah. So when yeah. they first sort of got out of the tunnel and, you know, uh, you found out that actually this is a movie that's very much interested in the media and how, like, uh, Korean bureaucracy, how that sort of, you know, springs into action in a crisis, Um I found that terrifically interesting. It's very sort of overwrought, but not not in a bad way, I don't think. Very, you know, there's nothing subtle about it, but, um, yeah, very, very well-made and funny too. Yeah, very funny because it's quite critical of this idea of, you know, popular journalism and media um, interfering with, you know, real life and death situations and interfering with politics. So it's very critical of those kinds of you know mechanisms in society and it's not subtle about that at all but it's very light-hearted as well so i kind of feel like even though it had a a sinister undertone it was very 
very funny and well done. Yeah, I mean, the, a, a, a terrific example of this is when uh, his uh, wife shows up at the scene and, you know, she's, she's an emotional wreck and she's sort of, uh, you know, crying and distraught and confused. And then you see the minister sort of come over for these, like, photo opportunities. And then there's, like, this very short montage of these, like, this uh, very serious-looking uh, woman who's, like, the minister for whatever the portfolio is that's responsible mm. for recovery. And there's photos of her and, like, all the recoverers, and they're, like, trying to, you know, stand with this wife as she's, like, a complete wreck. Oh, and yeah. it's quite... It's it's funny, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's all, and also making a point. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do, you, what do you think, Andy? Well, I th- it really took me by surprise because for the first half an hour it was fairly straightforward modern disaster movie and it's very hard mm. to think of one that is focused on the people rather than CGI-tastic displays of destruction and devastation. And so, it was, That's yeah, a good point. Yeah. I really like the way it went mm. straight into taking on fairly serious issues about media ethics, about the role of the politics, about how to deploy resources, about, and the whole thing set against this declining phone battery as well. So there's all this building tension. But then about 45 minutes in, it suddenly turns into this melodrama and it kind of pushes all these serious issues to the side and focuses on the emotional relationships. And then a dog turns up and you think, okay, so yeah. this is the direction we're going in now. It's actually <laughs> all about the melodrama. But a big budget melodrama is super rare. I mean, it's a really unusual film. And some really terrific, I assume it was, you know, CGI, the the actual footage of the tunnel collapsing from inside. And also, you know, there's an exterior shot of it, but it was kind of very affecting. Mm. Uh, And there are several sequences with a collapsing tunnel. Um, <laughs> yeah, which was great, but it, yeah. that really felt almost like the background to the what's the emotional journey of these characters, which was great. I thought. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It's very, it's very clever, intelligent, confident filmmaking. Yeah, I, think. I loved how um, they're for sort of in the middle of this film. Uh, you've got like two cars that are trapped uh, underneath the tunnel, and they're sort of you know, set as two separate zones and then the main guy is sort of walking between, moving, shuffling through the rubble between one car and the other car. And I just thought that was, like, very cleverly done. You know, he goes back to his original car and he breathes a sigh of relief and he's like, oh, I'm home. Yeah. Like, and I was <laughs> like, yeah, you've totally established this, like, little car as, mm. like, his little cocoon, you know, his home uh, for the duration of the film. Um, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. And I, I, the other thing I really like about it is that you do sort of think at the beginning that this is just going to be this very claustrophobic film. You're going to maybe be stuck in the tunnel the whole time, but you're you know, you do kind of move out of it and it's not hysterical in any way. The man sort of as it would be understandable at the beginning is kind of very upset about it, but he very soon gets into his groove, Mm. becomes comfortable in his little, you know, nook inside the collapsed rocks and carnage around him. Bantering with the dog. Mm. 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 Yeah. And the radio. And the the radio. Yeah, Yeah. and I I really love the way you actually got an insight into Korean life through this as well, like how quickly people identify themselves as being belonging to a company. I thought it was fascinating. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that like, woman says, "I'll let the please tell the company know that I'll be able to, I'll be out in time to yeah, make the, the force training or whatever." Or even when the main character is on the phone straight yeah. away, he says his name from Kia Motors. <laughs> like, so, yeah. like he has to identify himself straight away. Yeah, I thought that was that sort of thing. I thought was really interesting. The relationships with the people outside, I thought, was a bit too melodramatic to be believable. The connection he was making with the head of the disaster recovery unit seemed forced and there was all these things that I felt like were a bit pushing it and humongous plot holes but Mm. you know but whatever you kind of get taken along with the ride and I thought it was pretty enjoyable really there were fewer plot holes in this than there were in The Shallows 
that oh, Blake yes. Lively Shark movie that we saw <laughs> a few weeks ago and I just wanted to bring up because it's another one of those, you know, the protagonist is stuck in a very small mm. space and mm. just has one goal, which is to not die. <laughs> um, anyway. Mm, yeah, and challenge after challenge. Yeah. Yeah, you think you're getting saved. You might be, you might not be. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of that. Actually, yeah, good point. But yes, I think this is a f- superior film. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I, yeah, I, th- I thought it was really... It was like a great old, you know, evening at the movies kind of mm. thing, which mm. I haven't uh, had with a new release mainstream movie in a long time. Mm. So on that, you know, on that level, at least, I thought it totally ticked all the boxes for me. Mm. Yes, and if you're not able to catch this um, and its limited release around the country, I imagine it will be streaming fairly, fairly soon as well. Do you ever think about mom? Do you ever think about that? The car accident. Why? They know what really happened, right? Jonah does. But Conrad, well, he was 12. From Tunnel to another film that concerns itself with grief, death and existential uncertainty, Louder Than Bombs, the third film by Joachim Trier. He's a distant relation to the last one. Uh, not that close in style. Uh, so Louder Than Bombs uh, tells the story of a teacher, Jean Reed, who's played by Gabrielle Byrne, and his two sons, Jonah, played by Jesse Eisenberg, and Conrad by newcomer Devon Druid, who people might have seen as young Louis C.K. in some episodes of Louis C.K. He made a pretty good impression there, and he certainly does here. That family is dealing with the death of Isabel Huppert, who's a photojournalist, also called Isabel, the wife of Jean Reed and the mother of the two boys. Um, the film kicks off four years after her death in a car accident, and Tria kind of freely moves between time periods and different people's uh, na- inner narratives to be able to tell this story of the family grieving and kind of coming together or being pushed apart, as the case sometimes is, um, about her death. But he also take, takes in um, David Strathairn's New York Times journalist Richard, who has um, worked with Isabel, and he wants to commemorate her life in a, in a lengthy tell-all column in, for the New York Times. So this is kind of a rare film that looks at grief and masculinity in an American environment, and, but it feels quite European, I thought, with its repressed feelings and very, lots of autumnal tones. Um, Eloise, did Ladder Than Bombs work for you? I am still trying to figure it out. It was it's very uh, it's a very restrained film in all of its. I mean, even though it's trying to you know deal with these very heavy concepts, it almost shies away from them in a certain way. I suppose not to push too many buttons in any you know in any one kind of direction. Um, so it's very restrained. It's very quiet. You know, it's been noted in a lot of reviews that I've read that it's a very quiet film um it uses sound design you know extraordinarily well and music as well i don't can't even recall the the music but you know there are bits and pieces where it kind of flows in but you know silence is a a really important element to this Mm. um as is like you know kind of slow slow scenes slow conversations um Overall, I, I wasn't super moved by it. I had had it raved about to me, and I kind of think maybe that damaged my expectations slightly. Um, but I do want to point out there's kind of this section in the middle where um, Jesse Eisenberg's character, he's the older brother, is reading out something that his younger brother Conrad has written. Uh, it's this you know very kinetic kind of short story. Well, it's a diary, but it's a short story form, um, and 
it's accompanied by this kind of montage of images, some from, you know, real life or memory and some from media and gaming. And that was just stunning. I loved that sequence and, the, mm. the, you know, the rhythm of what he'd written was incredible and I was kind of thinking, oh, I wish I could, you know, write something like this. But that just really got me, got me very engaged and I thought it was a really excellent interlude in, mm, in yeah. the um, very oppressive grief that, that took over the rest of it. Yeah. It, it. It totally reminded me of that uh, section in The Rules of Attraction where he, like, recounts his trip to Europe oh, and, like, yes. it's in that, like, yeah, rapid-fire yeah. speed style. Is that the James style. Van Der Beek movie? Yes, yes, <laughs> based on the Brett Easton Ellis All right. a novel. Um, and it, it's a very similar style, though, to this, yeah, like, yeah. And it's, I haven't it, seen it for years. Yeah, but- well, this uses that, but I think in a much more... Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting, yeah. character-driven kind of way. Yeah, I really liked this film. I wasn't... I, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, and I think it's quite a... I mean, it's it's packed with a lot, and I think it's a bit unwieldy. Uh, but I, I really emotionally connected with this story of grief and the way it's told. I mean, on one level, I think this is a film that's all about, like, the lies that we tell ourselves and other people... Uh, in our sort of day-to-day interaction. So, like, the film starts with Jesse Eisenberg's character, who's a really unsympathetic character, I found. I found him a bit of a, like, total dick, uh, to be honest. But uh, anyway, the film starts with him in a hospital. His wife's just given birth to this brand-new baby, and she's hungry, and he says, oh, I'll go fetch you some food. So he goes out of the maternity ward and the restaurants are shut. So he's wandering around trying to find food and he runs into his ex-girlfriend who's there because her mum's dying, I think. Mm. Um, And she, uh, she, they make small talk and then the ex-girlfriend says, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, my wife. And then he doesn't finish uh, the fact, the sentence and the ex-girlfriend assumes that uh, his wife's, you know, sick or... Or, or something, and so sort of, and and she, the thing, the thing is, Eisenberg's character doesn't correct her on that, mm. and then he returns to the maternity ward, and his wife says, "Oh, you, you, where were you? You took so long," and he sort of doesn't mention the fact is just run into this girl. So already within the first five minutes, Jesse Eisenberg's character has lied like two or three times. And, and they then, all seem like very small things, but you yeah. can definitely tell that this is a pattern that he's obviously got into where he yeah. believes that he's entitled to just have it the easy way, I suppose. And Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he's like, you know, this uh, the classic straight white guy who's succeeded <laughs> wildly very quickly. It's like, mm. a, he's a, isn't he a sociology professor? Fully tenured? Yeah, mm. 27-year-old sociology yeah. professor. So I, I, think, I think that is perfect casting. If you've got a cast, oh yeah, totally. And, uh, he, <laughs> a, yeah. a twenty-seven-year-old New York sociology <laughs> yeah. professor, go Eisenberg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he played that role really well. I thought so. All this grief stuff I found really interesting. But you know what else I really found interesting was Huppert's character. So she's like, so she's this woman who's been dead for four years. So she only appears in flashback or dream sequences, yeah, on various levels of abstraction, um, and talking to each of these three characters and you get sort of through this weird sort of, you know, rippling effect, an idea of her character. And I thought what I really engaged with was this idea of her as this war, this photojournalist who's obviously been, who's struggling, I guess, to cope with her day job out uh, on the battlefield, taking photos of New York Times and then being back in upstate New York. And there's this, I, I thought it was quite an incredible monologue, very moving monologue that she and David Strathairn's character sort of both 
give mm, at the yeah, same time yeah. about um, how you've you're in one place, but you just want to get home, but then you've got to fly for two hours and you get home, uh, fly for two days, you get home, and you realise that your family, like, are fine without you, kind of. It's like this yeah. heart-wrenching uh, thing. Mm. And I thought that combined with that amazing, there's this amazing shot in an airport terminal where Hubert, like, notices this... Uh, so Hubert's got, like, this front page, uh, this photo in, like, page three of the New York Times about... Um, a refugee camp from memory mm, uh, yes. shot at a refugee camp yeah. and she looks over and she sees this businessman flicking through the paper and he sort of glances at the story and then like turns to page and it's really like <laughs> she's I mean this is her entire this is this, you know it's given her this depression this grief this long sense of melancholy for her and like in the end what does that amount to and mm. I thought that's quite a profound question to ask about the role of journalism and you know blah 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 so I thought yeah I thought there was a lot that's only, and that's only one part of the film. So mm. I thought there was a lot in this, mm. for too much probably. But yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah because I thought I thought thematically it was really really beautifully done. But to watch it, I just feel like Trier had too much loose. There's too much. There was, he was moving in between all these people. He had, even at one stage, the younger boy's girlfriend gets her own a couple of her own monologues. Yeah, you're right. But no, yeah. I was just like, this is you know, this is kind of cool and it's beautiful. And there's some fantastically arresting scenes of like Huppert floating above, you know, um, Syrian you know desert and stuff like that. This gorgeous stuff, which really puts you. Um, in the, in their mind, but it doesn't. I didn't really feel the empathy built up. I think possibly the yeah. characters are too flawed, or he just there's just too much here here and there. So the the editing I thought was all over the shop. I feel like we needed more of Isabel Huppert's character. Like uh, it was, you know, really interesting that we see her with the three different members of her family, uh, her husband and her two sons, and we see her, she behaves differently with all three of them, and that's a really kind of great insight into yeah. character. But maybe we didn't have quite enough of that. I just didn't feel that I got a connection with her in in a way that I think we maybe needed to have for the film to have its full impact and perhaps it could have mm. you know mm. cut out some of these other segments and maybe maybe done less to illustrate that Jesse Eisenberg's character is a bit of a dick as we've said because there is quite a lot of that and you know only you know the first scene that you just described Anders is quite enough to, yeah. to yeah, do that no, so, it keeps yeah. Going. Yeah, when yeah. He, halfway through when he does me yeah um the I mean, that's the interesting thing about Huppert's character in this film is that she always appears, like, but subjectively. So she's never her own. She's always appearing as, uh, you know, one of her sons or her husband or uh, her colleague at the New York Times talks about her, sees her, interacts with her. Yeah, and really then she's, you know, the premise of the film is she's being drawn as a certain, you know, character posthumously in this news article that's being written about her she's kind of her she's her identity is taken away and she becomes represented by the photographs that her family decides to display in the exhibition so it is it's almost like she's not complete she doesn't have her own means of expression mm. yeah yeah i think it's, that's a really interesting point um also I, I thought the um devon druid was amazing the younger boy who plays conrad who's a really dysfunctional teen he was who, very very convincing yeah very yeah. convincing yeah 
Um, a lot of use of Skyrim too, the game, which I, I think, mm. which I thought was pretty pretty well yeah. used as far as narrative goes in ways I would never <laughs> and have the expected. Dad talks about starting a character to try and bond with his son. The only way he can do it is through the, through Skyrim. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, would any of these three films we've discussed make it onto your top one hundred <laughs> films of the two thousands list? I haven't even thought about it, but probably, probably not. Mm, Mm, Probably, well, I don't even know if I've seen 100 films from this century because I, you know, watch a lot of old films. I probably have. I'm probably being facetious. The movies you've seen at MIFF in the last three years are probably. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I forgot all about those and put it out of my brain. I don't know. What about you, Anders? If one had to, it would be louder than bombs for sure. Mm. I haven't really given it much thought. Um, yeah. Okay. So a list that lots of people have given a lot of thought to yes. is the BBC mm, Top 100 Films of the 2000s that came out last week, which I think is worth discussing here in, in lieu of um, a top three that we usually do. Because lists are pretty contentious. A lot of people don't like them. They think they're pointless and stupid mm. and just you know for, generated for clicks. But um, I kind of argue, I really appreciate them for the fact that it gives you a chance to stop and pause and look back at something before you just kind of get out of the whole you know, ceaseless stream of new movies and ne- what's opening next week, what's opening next week. Um, and so this list I thought was really interesting, particularly because it seemed to capture the imagination in a way that lists, not many lists do. I mean, even the sight and sound list, you know, top 100 movies of all time list that comes out every 10 years doesn't, didn't seem to generate as much discussion as this one. And Eloise, did, how do you feel about listing? Is that something that you do yourself? I don't list. I think I may have given a top five or a top ten at, at, you know, one or two points in my life because people often, you know, in this, you know, when you say you're a film fan, people often demand these things of you. So I'm sure I have, but I am very anti it because I my mind change all, changes all the time. I'm so, f- you know, there's just too, basically too many. I don't want to be, I don't want to give myself any kind of finite boundaries so in terms of my own personal thing, I don't really think I'm a fan of lists. And mm, I mm-hmm. have seen a lot of the criticism around this BBC list of top 100 that it, it kind of, as an an aggregate of, you know, however many, 166 critics, I think it was, or something. 177. One, 177. <laughs> um, it... it there's no story to it. It's just a bunch of films that are a bunch of, you know, random or not random. I mean, they're all listed, but that a bunch of people have said that they like. Um, and the thing that I like about lists or about hearing people's favourites or, you know, most rated in any particular kind of area is the story behind it, behind mm. why, mm. Um, you know, mm. behind, you know, what particular thing that person was thinking when they saw the film or what was going through their mind or their life at the time. Like, I think that's what is missing from a a huge list like this one. And I know that you can go into each person who voted, you can go into their individual lists, and I think that would be the most interesting rather than, you know, just this big kind of predictable poll that put Mulholland Drive at the top. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not, not, you know, spiting Mulholland Drive at all, but it, it kind of is predictable. Mm, okay. Um, so the top five ended up being Boyhood, Spirited Away, There Will Be Blood, In the Mood for Love and Mulholland Drive. Would any of those films make the pointy end of your list, Anders? Yes, uh, Mulholland Drive would be my number one. Um, I've, uh, so for that reason, this is an amazing list. Um, <laughs> look, no, look, I, uh, yeah, I, I think I totally agree with you, Eloise, that the interesting thing about lists is the rationales behind them. Mm. I, I don't, I'm not particularly anti 
lists, really. I, I used to be. I used to, I really did used to have this aversion to them, but I think they're an interesting launchpad for discussion. Uh, as long as I've, I had this conversation with someone the other day um, on Twitter, we were talking about the scourge of lists. Uh, this was the day before this came out, so it was all very serendipitous. And I was like, I think, like, if you use a list as a springboard into a discussion about the films, about filmmaking, about, you know, taste, about whatever, I think great, wonderful. I think the problem is when people stop the discussion with, you know, numerical ranking, that's it. Because there's so much more to movies than just trying to compare them in a way that you that's completely arbitrary. As an exercise by the, put on by the BBC, I don't particularly have a problem with this, with the idea behind this, because I think... It's, you know, it's a list of interesting, good movies that, you know, people may not uh, know about, you know, a general audience might, you know, if it motivates a general audience to go and watch Mulholland Drive, then I don't see the problem with it at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I thought this was a really interesting mix of films, because usually when you get this, you get a preponderance of American voters voting for American films, and you get... Mm. About, you know, quite a few films that that um, possibly should make a list, like the like Yee Yee. I was thought that was amazing to see that at number eight. I mm. thought that was amazing because I had no idea that many people had seen it. Because I remember catching it at, at the Edinburgh Film Festival, like in two thousand and one or something, and thinking this was an incredible film that no one else I'd ever spoken to had ever heard of. And then it turns up here. Mm. So there was moments like that I thought were really good. But it also, it kind of puts you in, in this universe now where Almost Famous is a better film than Twelve Years a Slave, for example, you know, which is kind of strange. But at the same time, it's kind of interesting that that's taken on. That, you know, people are still thinking about it that fondly. Yeah, or taking Almost that, famous. Yeah, for example, mm. yeah, as a film that I would think would be fairly entertaining, kind of well-made, but not a great film. Like, Yeah, know. and definitely dated. Mm, yeah, mm. but it, obviously some well, enough people... It's, I think it's kind of interesting to see these sorts of trends and to see, um, you know, which films get overlooked. I mean, the fact that Birdman didn't make the list at all, but then Boyhood was number five. I think, yeah, you know, sort of thing. Boyhood, I can't believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, here we go, here we go. We're, mm. we're now engaged. Yeah, you can go down list. all these rabbit holes. <laughs> I do want to mention, so this blog, uh, Women in Hollywood, I don't know who runs it, but I was was, um, kind of directed to it by a Twitter account, Female Film Critics. This website has kind of collated a lot of the individual answers only by women at this stage and said that a whole bunch of interesting, sad or at least eye-opening facts, I suppose, out of 177 critics, only 55 were women and that doesn't necessarily mean that that more women weren't asked and just didn't submit their answers but it's you know it's something to to keep in mind yeah less than two-thirds include less than two-thirds of people who voted in the poll included films directed or co-directed by women on their Mm. lists of the 55 women critics 44 included women directors on their list Uh, these are a couple of you know extra points but that identifies that there is maybe the, a problem with, you know, these kind of lists and they need to be controlled or, like, held to a higher standard. Totally. The, the first, the highest-ranking film on this list directed by a woman is Lost in Translation yeah. at mm. number 21 or 22 or something. So that's, you know, that's kind of shit. Like, it's, 20, it's, it's the 21st 20. century. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of films made by women in the 21st century. Yeah. Like, why can't we have more... In you know, I would think that there are a bunch of films directed by women that are way better than Boyhood. You know, not to <laughs> yes. rag on the mm. one particular film, but but I feel like there needs to be more attention given to those kind of stats if we're gonna have 
a list like this as well. Mm. And, yeah, you're exactly uh, right. And the thing is that it's so influential. Like, this list will be sent out to non-film culture as, like, you know, Mm. as apparently being, uh, you know, the arbiter of what consensus is on um, 21st century filmmaking. So you've got to get it right, I think. Yeah, but again, you know, what's right? Well, yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) Well, um, Tony Erdman being the one representative from 2016, I thought that was good to see, female director. Came in at number 100. 100, creeping in at the bottom, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought there was a lot of really interesting directors who whose work I hadn't been that familiar with as well, like Lucretia Martel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean that's an embarrassing blind spot well, for me. Well, she's but. only made about four films. Cinematech screened uh, screened them a few years ago, um, but was, she's a yeah good one to to be aware of. So it's great that her film showed up on the mm, list. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's quite a few examples like yeah, that. Yeah, but it, that is good. But, you know, if all you can say is it's great that a film showed up on the list, <laughs> then it's not high praise. So I'm clearly not a huge fan <laughs> of it. But, you know, reading out all of the stats that I just wrote out is like maybe a little bit dull as well. But if you're going to take a list, you maybe need to take the, those kind of stats alongside it. But, I mean, you guys have, have both done so. So I'm, I think I'm just shouting out to <laughs> all of our listeners who... I hope all have the same kind of open-mindedness. Mm. And whether you do or don't, you can always get in touch with us at the Cult Cap Pod on Twitter or Cultural Capital Podcast on Facebook. Anders, where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me at Anders Furs, F-U-R-Z-E. You can find me on Twitter at Eloise Low Ross. And I'm at Andy Ricky on Twitter. Thank you very much for getting to the end of episode eight with us. Um, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks and we hope to hear from you before then. Well, two of us will be back. Oh, yes. Unfortunately, I'm taking a short hiatus over the next six to eight weeks while I finish a thesis. But I do look forward to returning to the podcast <laughs> in a couple of months. Yes. And in and the summer weather. Oh, mm. And Andy and I will do our very best to hold the fort while yes. you are gone. <laughs> Hopefully with a special guest or two to try and make up for your loss. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Sniff. Sniff.